All right, quick shout out to our show sponsor, Made With Meat, meat processing equipment. If you like to process your own game, you need to check out Meat. Uh, It's madewithmeat.com. They make awesome game processing equipment, and I've been using them for years. I love all their stuff. One of the best things I ever did was invest in good meat processing equipment. Uh, I've grinded a lot of elk over the years with way too small of grinders. That took me way too long. So now that I've upgraded to the real stuff, this industrial-grade meat processing equipment, uh, it takes no time. I can knock out an elk really quick. And speaking of that, this month we are giving away a meat dual grind, one horsepower grinder. This thing is a beast. It can shoot through an entire elk in no time flat. And I mean, anyone who's ground up elk knows, man, it's really, it's really nice to have a big meat grinder. We are giving one away this month for the January month giveaway. We are giving away a one horsepower dual grind. Basically, you don't even have to grind twice, all, all in one grind, which is awesome. So we're giving that away now. Last year we did some meat or we did some giveaways. This year we have a ton more giveaways planned. If you signed up for the course last year, you can re-sign up this year. But we added something, a cool new feature this year. If you sign up in 2024 and you sign up for the annual subscription, you'll be entered into every single giveaway we do this year. So if you signed up last year, sign up again. I know it's crazy. You can just upgrade your account to an annual subscription, and that's going to give you access to all the new stuff we put out this year. But also, it's going to give you access to all the giveaways that we do. So head over to the website, check it out, uh, sign up for the course, take the course. It's it's a great course. Uh, leave a testimonial, do all those things, and you'll be entered into the giveaway for January. Go take the course, get entered, win a meat grinder. Pretty good deal. All right, on to the episode. This is the Elk Hunt Podcast, home to everything elk hunting. I'm your host, Cody Rich. From fellow DIYers to elk hunting legends, we have elk hunting stories, tips, tactics, and more to get you pumped for elk season. Join us every week for great elk hunting content. No podcast for it. We don't need intros. We don't need <laughs> hype. What's up, buddy? How you been? Oh, gosh. I'm good, man. Uh, I'm kind of glad that... Uh, my elk seasons are are over with. Does it come and go quickly? No, God no. It 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 comes quickly, but it's it's slow and going. You know, it's a long, it's a long season. And I say that, like I say that it's over with, but we've got cow seasons that run like through January. And I know folks are gonna show up that I don't know have the tags and they're gonna call and be like, hey man, I need some help. And I, I'm a sucker, so I'm gonna say yes, and I'm gonna go. Deal with more dead elk. Uh, dude. Uh, yeah, you've handled a lot of dead elk. What did you tell me you killed this year? Like 14? 14 this year. Last year, the last bull we killed last year made a career 100,000 pounds of elk. Um, And then I kept, you know, keeping track. But we killed 14 this year, I think. Oh, that's, that's a lot of elk. That's crazy. Uh, They're too what- heavy. This yeah. is one of the main problems with elk. And I think that people like need to get together and, and find a solution. Elk are too heavy. We need smaller elk. Yeah. Like miniature donkeys, but for elk and we'll just hunt those. Yeah. Yeah. Like let's keep them elk shaped. I'm I'm happy with the sound that they make. I just want them smaller, you know, yeah. somewhere in like the 50 to hundred pound range would be good for me. You know, those like little targets, you have one, you know, the little I do. targets, like let's, yeah. what if those were just like a real thing? I'm really into that. I would love that so much. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> and increase the limits, maybe one daily. <laughs> I, 
I can get on board with this. We're gonna we're gonna need them to like mate year round too, like or at least like you know carp maybe three times a year, and so we just have like three different ruts, you know, like we sure. just make this yeah. you know an event nonstop. <laughs> Dude, when I was in uh in Tierra del Fuego, Argentina, fly fishing down there, making a little fly fishing film. Something I didn't know about Tierra del Fuego, it's a big island. Uh, it's a large island, kind of at the southernmost point of South America. And there are, are over a million head of feral cattle on that island, just roaming around. And we would fish from like dark until, I don't know, 10 a.m., 11 a.m. And we'd go out and we'd shoot a calf. With the jankiest break action Russian 223 you've ever seen in your life, scope taped onto it, literally. We'd shoot a calf, throw it in the back of the truck, and then we'd, you know, spatchcock it and roast it over fire. You'd sleep until you woke up, eat until you couldn't, go out and fish until midnight, come back, do it all over again. And it it was just incredible seeing all these cattle acting wild because I've seen cattle that like winter out, and I learn a lot from from cattle that I apply to elk. And I think that a lot of the cattlemen out there don't realize how much elk knowledge they really have uh, because these, these bovines do tend to act really similar. So if you've got cattle that spend a winter out, they get pretty darn wild. If they're born wild, like these calves that are born out that never got gathered and then they don't get gathered until the next year, they're a legit wild animal. So you can really consider the way that they act similar to the way an elk acts. Um, now, one of the things that was really interesting to your point is because they were just feral cattle, they were out there all year long um, and they came into estrus all year long. So there'd be herds of like a hundred bulls all together that would just be like constantly basically in in the rut so to speak um even though those aren't the terms that we talk about it with cattle so yeah it, it was really interesting behavior to kind of see see what it looked like for a domestic animal to get overtaken by nature and what they held on to from domesticity and, and what they let go of yeah that is yeah that is fascinating like what was your biggest takeaway you think uh biggest takeaway is that everything will trend towards wild almost immediately or it will die. So if, if you take any, any domestic species and you put it in a situation where those are the only two options, it will trend towards that wild option and towards survivability or it will die in the process. That's interesting. What I, I, I don't want to get too off topic. There's, I have a topic we want to cover, uh, but like, Sorry. since you brought it up, no, you're good. You're good. But I want to talk, I want to ask like, how do you see, like you've hunted a lot of public and you have a lot of private, you know, guys who only hunt public always say like, well, yeah, it's on private that they act different or whatever. Like in your opinion, what does that variable look like? Cause as you were talking, I'm like, yeah. Okay. So what is that different? How does that equate to say elk on private land versus elk on public land? Elk don't act differently on public or private land, but hunters do. And elk respond to that pressure. So the habitat uh, is going to change between public and private land because private land owners tend to take a lot better care of the land than the public land managers do. So that can influence elk behavior. The, the frequency and dispersion of food and water are going to change elk behavior. But public land hunters are really willing to, 
to take Hail Mary, high pressure, you know, high aggression tactics, any chance they get. They're like, okay, if we don't go after this bull, somebody else is, and they're going to just Leroy Jenkins into the situation and give it everything they've got. And I'm not criticizing that at all because I understand what that, the type of pressure that can only develop from competition. Okay. But if you're on private land, even if, if, if it's a great big piece of private land, I'm talking like 20, 30,000 acres, right? If you take a 20,000 acre block and, and you can, you can bust out your phone and get on Onyx and, you know, bust out shapes and make a 20,000 acre block and then do your line distance thing from the center to the edge. And it's only going to be a couple miles, right? So if you're on private land, that's a big piece of private and you screw elk up bad enough that they're going to want to go two miles, they're gone. And they might be gone for the whole season. They might be gone forever, like sandlot forever (laughs) gone. So you've got to be a lot more careful in your, in your approach to how you're interacting with these animals on private land than you do on public land. But you get that possibility, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, that segues into what we want to talk about really, really well, in my opinion. And the one thing I want to talk Thank about, you. I, you're expert, expertly done. So I want to talk about strategic maneuvering. And uh, this could be, yeah. we could talk about the, ma- the macro scale, which is, you know, do I make this move? Do I not make this move? But even on the micro and the thought, the concept came to me this year, I was hunting. I spent a lot of time just like kind of chasing elk. I usually wouldn't. And it was just like, man, there's a lot to be said for how you set up, when you set up, how you dog a herd, like how you put yourself in the right position. And so much of that is twofold. It's like, how do you not bump those elk, right? Like, how do you leave the play open for tomorrow? And, and then also, how do you just put yourself in the right place to, you know, you talk about setups, right? Even calling setups. There's there's a million ways we could go with this, but I was like, what what better dude to talk about this than than yourself? Uh, so we could. I don't know if I don't know where you want to take it. If you want to go just super macro or super micro, uh, but like I would love to just kind of dive into this concept of strategic maneuvering and how it applies to elk hunting. What people are missing, and then what a guy like yourself, who gets a shit ton of at bats, does differently. Yeah. What you're really talking about is is tactics, right? And the difference between tactics and strategy from a military or from a from a definition standpoint is strategy is like big muscle movements, right? Those are the big blue arrows on the map. Like we are going to go hunt elk in this unit in Colorado, and our strategy is going to be focusing on places that are a mile from a trail and half a mile from water on Northeast aspects, right? That's going to be the strategy. The tactics are once you get to that slope or get within striking distance of that slope. And that's where maneuver really comes in. Uh, I learned a lot about maneuver as a, as a tank commander and as a tank officer. And I planned a lot of large scale movements where, where our maneuver was critical not only to our survival, but to uh, accomplishing our mission. I think about maneuver in everything that I do, right? If I get up off of my chair to go to the kitchen, I'm thinking about my maneuvers that I'm going to have to make so that I can optimize everything that I need to accomplish for whatever objective I just dreamed up while I was sitting in my chair. I think about 
this stuff all the time. And I think about it really, really carefully with elk because I guide on private land. And if I screw things up, the worst case scenario is that they leave forever. A bad case scenario is those elk are going to be back here next year and they just learned something about me. To, to go down that a little bit further, uh, one of my guides and a good friend, uh, Greg Jones, who is a, um, a professional uh, USDA wildlife control officer for many years, um, dude's a legend. He's killed over 200 wolves, uh, right around 30,000 coyotes. All right. In his wolf stuff, he learned that the wolves were learning him and they were learning his dogs. So where he could go in and take turds from his dogs to make, make sets and, and to trap wolves that only worked once with that dog. And he was having wolves come back into the area and then blow out before they ever got into these sets. And what he tried was going out and finding another, another dog turd. And then it worked again. Right. But these wolves were learning him. They were learning his dogs. The elk are doing the same thing with me now in this this area that I'm guiding on. And the new guides that I bring on tend to be more effective in calling than I am. And it's not because they're they're better at calling than I am. It's not that they're they're better at their tactics than I am. It's that I am also a creature of habit and, and these elk have learned a lot of my tricks. They've learned a lot of my sounds. I think they learn, uh, I think they learn my setups. I think that they learn what I smell like and they do get smarter. And of course they would, right? Uh, it, it's critical if there's a, a predator that is perennially preying on them during a specific time of year, the elk that don't get killed are going to learn about that predator and learn how to evade him. So I'm constantly having to change up my own game uh, in order to introduce something new to those animals. But something that I've noticed and that I'm definitely dealing with are elk that have learned about me through the mistakes that I've made. That is fascinating. Do you think that's cows? Like, is that lead cows learning what you do? Is that bulls learning? Is it all of the above? Like, you know, how would you classify that? Uh, bulls to an extent, but bulls are so dumb, man. Bulls are, are, they're, they're a really dumb animal, especially once they get filled up with hormones. Uh, they're, they're not smart. Um, and their, their aggression far outweighs their caution, uh, you know, during, during separate and distinct phases of the rut through September and October. Uh, we really, we talk about the rut in September, but really, uh, that that's, that's incorrect to do so because the first asterisk doesn't really begin until almost the end of September. Uh, this year I experienced more, more bugling rutting and fighting activity in October than I did during September. And that was fascinating. And it also, uh, supports what I was seeing on the ground, which is that there was far more second estrus calves than there were first estrus calves. But uh, so, yeah, I, I think cows are, are the biggest part of the game. The ladies are smart. They got the brains. Uh, they hold a purse. Uh, anybody that says that bull picked up his cows and took off, <laughs> uh, man, you're, you're probably anthropomorphizing that situation a little bit. You can't right. push a string. Yeah. Uh, he's, <laughs> it's not a border collie. That bulls tends to be at the back, right? And that's where he can uh, follow along. He can smell all those females that are that are in front of him. 
but I think you have to beat the cows. You have to defeat the cows. And as far as like the lead cow, I look at that as em employee of the week. The lead cow is not the same individual year round. It, it changes often, um, maybe even day to day, depending on where they go. So I think the different cows are experts in different areas and whichever cow tends to be the, the best expert at whichever area those elk end up in becomes the lead cow in that moment. That's interesting. I, I, I 100% believe that. And I've seen that as well. Um, and uh, yeah, dude. So, okay. So I want to dive into kind of like the, the nitty gritty, let's start there. And, and yep. I'm going I'm to give you a case, uh, you know, this is pretty classic. I think a lot of people have probably been in the situation where it's like, okay, uh, daylight, we find these elk, uh, and it doesn't work out. We don't call them in, but now we're starting to follow them. And, you know, once you're in that dogging the herd mode, it's very, very difficult because on, on one hand, you're like trying to, you know, in theory, it's like loop around and get in front of them. You, easier said than done. I'm just trying to keep up there, boss. But you know, how do you, when you look at like maneuverability, what's your strategy once you get into that, you know, dogging the herd vibe, is it to back out? Is it to change tactics or do you keep following, like getting into that situation? So you've got a couple problems going on when you're, when you're dogging a herd. One is that the best I can tell is an elk herd that is leisurely traveling in the morning is doing so at about four to five miles an hour. And you have to stop to set up, right? A bull very much wants not to come back to a place that he just was. Uh, it can be very exciting to, to follow a herd. The, the bulls tend to be following and bugling. They'll bugle at you. Um, so you feel like you're getting interactions. You can get bulls to stop and check up for a little bit, but as you get closer, he's going to leave again. So it, it's really, man, it, it's like that girl who was a junior in high school when you were a sophomore in high school and she's just leading you on. You're never going to catch up. All right. So let her go. Let her go. Let that herd go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and man, uh, what, what I've been doing the past couple of years in, cause I've dogged herds for, for many, many miles, typically a morning hunt for me ends up being around six miles. And, uh, that's five and a half more miles than I want to go. Uh, and you know, three or four of those are going to be just following that herd out until they get in, into bedding cover that I cannot bump them out of because that, that's a cardinal sin in my situation. So then I have to pick up and turn around and get back, um, get back and, and get away from them. So I've got another chance with these elk in the future. I've put on so many iterations of that. I could probably calculate how many miles I've spent making this mistake. And it would be well over hundred, well over hundred miles of making the same mistake over and over again. So what I have started doing is if I cannot catch that herd and man, I am with them in the dark. Like I go out in the dark, if I can locate these elk, which I typically can, I am like jogging slash faster than jogging to get as close as possible to them. And oftentimes I'm within archery range of a bull in the dark. And that's really easy to do. The ground is still wet from dew. It's quiet. Uh, elk don't see all that well when, uh, when you've got those, those kind of witching hour light, especially before it's shooting light. So you can really get in there close. And I think it's a great opportunity to maneuver yourself into that position aggressively. 
have the wind right. And then in the first seconds of shooting light, like as soon as it's legal shooting light, you need to kind of throw everything at that bull. And a lot of times you can get them to hook up right then. And if, if it doesn't, then it turns into that foot race that ends with, with the elk in bedding ground and you not catching them. If you're on public land and they get into that bedding ground, now's when you need to pull back and wait and wait for hours and do so far enough away that they're not going to win you no matter what. But in, so we've got the speed element um, going against this. The other thing we have going against us is that they're probably feeding into the wind. So if you hook around them, if you just, you know, who's you saying bolt your way in front of this herd of elk and get, get in front of them and get in position. Well, now they're going to wind you. And if you get off to the side of them a little bit, you need them to make a course correction in order to come over to you. And that doesn't make any sense for those elk to do either. So all of your plays are, are pretty much shot. So what I do is after uh, that, that morning shot where, you know, maybe I can get them, maybe they can't. Now they're on the move. Hopefully I haven't scared them too bad. Uh, a lot of times, even if you do blow them up, they're going to check up at about a half mile out and you can go relatively quickly um, talking about running again to get caught up with them and then slow way, way, way down. Uh, at that point, I want to get off to the side of their track, parallel that track for a little ways until I find what is my ideal setup. And I want to be really nitpicky about that, but I want to find my ideal perfect setup where it's like, oh, this is the dream. If we position the shooter right here and I can go stand over here and then my alternate positions are here and here and I can make those without being seen but I can broadcast sound in these areas and I think the wind's going to continue doing this or switch to this I find my ideal setup and I'm going to drop anchor there and I'm going to wait and what I have found over the last two years in particular is that there are bulls that are like 45 minutes behind that herd and they're so vulnerable they're incredibly vulnerable. So all I have to do is sit there and be patient and wait. And usually they're making sound as they're moving. And that takes a lot of, of courage on your end to shut the fuck up <laughs> completely until he's really close, like under a hundred yards. And then you just give him a nudge and make sure that your shooter's ready because, uh, they're, they're going to show up. You need to make sure that you're not presenting that bull in a way that it's going to be a, a quarter and two shot because that's a mistake I've made a bunch in this scenario. So I've got to find a way for that bull to be able to walk through in a place where my shooter can draw. And then I can stop that bull again within 10 or 15 seconds so that he's not shaking too bad with the draw weight. And, uh, then we can execute that shot and, uh, you know, it's, it's just high fives and bloody hands after that. <laughs> Until the cows figure out, well, I guess the, the, the beauty of that plan is that you're, you're kind of staying away from the cows and you're just focusing on those satellites. So just focusing on dumb bulls. So that works out really well. That Dude. Yeah. I, yeah. I really, uh, I really think that the, the majority, I hate to pick on newer elk hunters, but like the majority of people's system, and we talk a lot about systems here is like, you know, oh yeah, I'm going to go out and I find these elk at daylight and then, oh, you know, I work them back, you know, and all of a sudden you're hunting them in the worst opportune time. You know, they're, they're head down walking five miles an hour into the wind. Good luck catching. And then guys like, oh, I'll come back tonight, you know, and like they come back and try to expect you're hunting with this very difficult times. And like, it's, it's, 
it's fun. It's action packed. Like you said, I spent a lot of years, so many years chasing elk thinking I was he man, just bugling, you know, for miles across canyons. And like, it was so fun, but like, you realize that like, man, very few of those opportunities work out into opportunities. Sometimes like sometimes you can dog a herd. And, and like you said, it's just, you know, sometimes they'll come back, you you get that opportunity, but man, it is very, very rare. Uh, I've always been a huge believer. Like I, I had so many opportunities right at daylight. And for me, it was like, I got to be there. I got to be within striking distance. Like if not within shooting distance, when it gets daylight, because that's, you know, you get that 10 minutes where they're still milling around and it does seem like things have kind of changed. Like there's a little bit of, you know, satellites are trying to test the herd a little bit, you know, like there's a little bit of chaos and then they take off. It's like, you got five or 10 minutes in that window. And that's, a, I think, a great insight. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it, it is a really, really narrow window. I want you to think about like a lot of people commute to work, right? Imagine you commute to work and that's in the evening. Okay. And you work all night long. And then in the morning, it's time to go home. And as you're driving home, you look in your rear view mirror and you see it like a neon sign that says really good opportunity. Are you going to turn around for that? Or are you just going to go home? And, and that's really what we're asking these elk to do is like see something in the rearview mirror, detect it, hear it, and then be like, yeah, I'm going to head back towards work right now. Like, no, they're <laughs> tired. They just want to go lay down for a while. Don't ask them to do something that you yourself would be unwilling to do if you were in their situation. Yeah. How many times do you focus on like, I'm going to, oh, if I was here tomorrow, like that would work out perfect. Uh, and I know like that, that always comes like, man, if I was just right there today, that would have worked out perfect tomorrow. I'm going to be right there. How do you think about that? As far as strategic maneuvering, like planning for say a, a tonight setup, you know, or a tomorrow morning setup, do you play that or you play day by day? I play that a little bit off what I see on cameras but not so much off of elk that I interacted with. So like if, if I was to, to have some type of interaction encounter with elk on, on Tuesday morning and I analyze that, I do my after action and I say, okay, if I had done this differently, then we would have had an opportunity. I, I've tried many times to go back and, and have that same opportunity again by, by not making the mistake that I made the previous day and it never works. Not, not, not ever and not, not ever works. And I think we, we really think of elk in, in terms of like everything that they do is, is because of something that we did. Like we really insert ourselves into those animals lives and you don't know what's going on with those elk throughout the day. So I don't know what kind of night, those elk had, you know, did a lion working on them? Was there a pack of coyotes that came in and killed a calf? Did wolves blow through them? Did another hunter come past? You know, did somebody fly over in a super cub too low? Like every night the deck gets reshuffled and it's important to those elk survival that, that their actions are not predictable. It, it's critically important because if they are predictable, then every predator out there is going to then predict those movements and make assumptions about what they're going to do the next time and be there to capitalize on it. Uh, bulls, we, we know, like it's very well known that bulls tend not to go to the same wallow two days in a row that they, they kind of have a route and like, 
you know, Ryan Carter has bulls that like only hit the same wallow like once every 18 days or something. Like Ryan is an incredible big bull guide. I would hate to be one of his clients, right? <laughs> if if he stuck me in a tree and it's like, hey, you're gonna ride this thing for 21 days, uh, and this bull's gonna come through on one of them, and I'm not sure which, I'd be like, pass bro like let's go lay <laughs> let's go lay eyes on one yeah but he's incredibly effective because he believes in his own system and his own system works really well uh so yeah i i think about about predicting elk behavior in the same way that i think about counting cards and <laughs> if you feel like you've got a good count on the deck and then somebody comes up and shuffles that deck you can't make the same assumptions you had because new information is in place that you're unaware of. Right. Well, that, that kind of gets into this, this concept of, you know, I, I talk a lot about being within striking distance versus getting way back and kind of seeing big picture. And I don't think enough people kind of balance those two. You know, I, I spend a lot of time, like I want to see the whole playing field. I don't want to just hike into somewhere and, and assume that there's going to be out there and, and that it's going to work out. I'd rather be able to see the playing field, but then I also want to be within striking distance when I need to be like, I need to be close enough to make something happen. The worst thing you can do is be a mile away and you're like, Oh, if I was there right now, that would work out because just like we talked about, you, you you'll never get that opportunity again. So when you think about like the strategic maneuvering of say getting in there super tight, ready to go at day when the, when the, when the clock starts at daylight versus like, okay, I need to be back. I want to see what these elk are doing and then make a move. Like, how do you kind of balance those two objectives? That's really terrain dependent for me. Uh, and you've seen, you know, the, the public land terrain that I hunt is, is, uh, is vertical, right? So within, within that verticality, it offers me the ability to glass it from a long ways away where I guide is flat. So I'm unable to, to glass this at all. So my only way of going out and, and detecting animals is through sound. So, uh, because I, I, I worked like 530, uh, hours in September this year. So my, my average day, um, was, was over 18 hours a day and I did it every single day of the season. Um, I cannot take my three and a half hours of sleep and dedicate part of that to going out at night and finding elk. So I need to just find them in the morning and, uh, and, and get after it from there. So I'm going to leverage, leverage technology to help me with that. And in the places where you can use game cameras, like you, you need to be doing that. If you can use a cell camera, you need to be doing that, uh, because it, it's just going to provide you with a lot of information uh, that that you can collect without putting your scent on the ground. When you, when you like a lot of times you're moving through, say it's dark or whatever, how do you think about, you know, not bumping elk? Uh, I think whitetail hunters get, you know, like it's very like, okay, I can't go this way. I can't go that way. Stay out of it. Do you think about that with elk? And I guess yours is going to be a little bit different than say mine because Again, you're hunting private where you really, really don't want to bump them. Like that's the last thing you want to do. So I'm just kind of curious, like, how do you, how do you think about trying not to bump elk when you're trying to find elk? And then how would that be different if you were just Joe Blow hunting public land? If if it's dark and I've got the wind, I don't even really care that much if I bump them. Like I'm pretty aggressive with my movements in the dark. Uh, and 
uh, I'll either use a, a night vision goggle or, uh, or, or no light at all. And uh, I, I think, I think headlamps save a lot of elk. I've seen the elk spook from a huge distance uh, from headlamps. Really? So, yeah, I, I, I've actually seen them spook farther from headlamps than I have from scent. The farthest that I'm aware of actually spooking elk from scent is half a mile. And I've seen them spook at close to a mile from headlamps. So if I'm moving in the dark, I'm moving aggressively. I don't really care if I'm, if I make sound elk or loud, but, uh, what I found is the elk that I bump in the dark, uh, they startle and that's it. And as long as, uh, as long as you don't follow your natural inclination and go completely silent and not move at all after that, like that, that's the mistake, right? If you startle elk in the dark and then you freeze and the only sound that you make is, is your heartbeat elk are going to be really, really leery because you, you can't be silent and convince them that nothing happened. You can't gaslight them out of that situation. Uh, so go ahead and and make a little bit of noise in a way that that isn't threatening to them. Um, you know, grab a stick and make it sound like there's a squirrel messing around over there and gaslight them that way. But don't make them think that they're try try and make them think that they're, that they're crazy people and that, that they didn't hear anything at all because that's not going to work. Um, their guard is going to be up. And as soon as you increase their alertness to that next stage, then any mistake you make turns into a big reaction. So if you, if I startle elk in the dark, that's not that big of a deal. Um, I'm going to find ways to calm them back down again, hopefully without having to use an elk sound, but I'll, I'll use a calf sound if I have to. And then they'll be like, Oh, it's just a dumb calf that like ran into a tree or something when really it was me that ran into the tree. <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing scarier. Uh, well, the only thing scarier than wrestling in the brushes is when it stops. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. S same thing, right? If if that was you, and you're just tootling along throughout your daily business, and you hear something, you you stop, and you're like, "What was that?" And then you hear absolutely nothing. That's a problem. <laughs> but yeah. if it keeps yeah, going, it, you're done. Right. Yeah. If it's like, oh no, that's just a squirrel and um, I'm panicking because I thought it was Bigfoot and I'm an idiot. Then yeah, uh, yeah you can just move on. Yeah. What advice I want to get into like your system and you had talked a little bit about, you know, how it has changed a little bit of your evolve, I should say, uh, you know, with elk kind of learning your behaviors. And I would love to get into that, but first, like, is there any advice you have on strategic maneuvering within elk? Like as far as maneuvering, maybe around herds or with like within, I don't want to say dog in the herd, but like just within elk in yeah. particular that you would, you would say to the audience. Well, in the, in the evening, it's a different situation, right? Because the elk are coming out now. So they're showing up to work and that creates a, a whole new opportunity for you to interact with those animals. And it's 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 a polar difference from what they're doing in the morning. And I think evening hunts can be can be really great. Uh, there's there's a lot of problems with the evening hunts as well, because oftentimes we're getting our shot at really close to last light, which leads to a situation where blood trailing is infinitely more difficult and, uh, and then we're also fat fatigued ourselves because we're diurnal animals and, um, your, your inner bitch is going to tell you to leave that animal and come back in the morning. And if you find it with an elk that, that meat's gone. Um, so 
if what I've found is even like 30 degree, 20 degree nights, if you leave an elk out there overnight, you're losing at a minimum half of it, if not all of it. Uh, so I, I'm really cautious about, about taking evening shots and I, I don't like doing it. I, I far prefer taking morning shots, but evening shots are, are great opportunities to, to interact with elk. Um, as far as maneuvering around them, it depends what your objectives are. Now, are you hunting a herd bull? Are you trying to get a bull? Are you trying to get an elk? Uh, that, that changes up a little bit. If you're trying to get to the herd bull, something that you have to deal with is figuring out how to get rid of satellite bulls without scaring the rest of the herd. And, uh, what will often happen is you'll start calling elk and you'll hear a bull hook up and you're like, okay, we're going to get this one. You make your setup, call that bull in and he's a satellite bull. Well, in the, you know, 10 or 30 minutes it took you to do that. The rest of the herd is gone, man. Uh, so you can hang out and have a staring contest with that bull and lose even more time. Or as soon as you detect that he's not the bull you're going after, you need to find a way to get rid of him that doesn't give him a, uh, a psychological scar that you're going to have to deal with next year when he is a shooter bull, right? A lot of people just freeze up when that elk shows up and they're like, oh gosh, don't spook him. He's not a shooter bull, but you know, we're not going to do anything. And that elk is going to come in. He's going to stop. Look, he's not going to see what he wants to see. He's going to start to circle around. Um, he might, you know, if he catches somebody like letting their bow down, now he's going to start barking. That's a problem. And now nobody wants to move. Uh, I like to just scare him off early. So as soon as that bull shows up and he's not the bull you want, it's a spike, it's raghorn, whatever, you need to get rid of him right now. And the quicker you can do that, the better it's going to be for you and for your interaction with that bull in the future if you're coming back to hunt this area again. And, you know, as soon as he comes through the timber, if it's not the right bull, take your hat off and wave it at him. You know, do do something to, like, startle that elk away, and he's just going to run off. And then you can continue on. You can catch back up. And there's been times where I've had to call in three or four or five satellite bulls just to get to the herd. And it's exciting. It's exhausting. It's, it's really, uh, it takes a lot out of you emotionally because you, you can't score a bugle, right? You don't know what that bull's going to be when he shows up from what he sounded like shows up. He's the wrong bull. It's like you go to, from high to medium. It's not really a low, but now we've got to get rid of him and go and do it over and over again. And if you call in, four or five bulls in two hours trying to get to the herd so that you can maybe get a crack at that herd bull. Uh, man, you are just like spent in yeah. and guys that come back to the lodge after hunt like that. It looks like they're made out of jello. They just pour themselves into a chair and like, they can't hardly get their boots off. I'm like, wow, that was an incredible elk hunt. And truly it is, but you've got to be able to get rid of those satellite bulls quickly in order to get to the herd bull. So that's, that's a major consideration. Dude, One that, thing you can do. Uh, let me, yeah, let me interject on that. Uh, I mean, it's so true. Uh, and this is, I mean, kind of why I do a lot less calling than I used to, because it's such a time hack. If you get into like areas where you have a high bull to cow ratio, you have a lot of satellites working in an area. Like, it, like you said, you could burn four hours just calling in yeah. every single bull. And guess what? Almost every bull is going to come in before that herd bull. 
that's a whole nother topic. But uh, like you said, I've also found, you know, you call in that spike. I'm, I would rather just run at that spike and get him like way out of here than have him bark. Because I used to do that too. It's like, you call in a spike and you're like trying to be sneaky. You're trying to like, okay, I'll just go around you. And then you're not giving enough to scare him. So he's just going to sit there and bark at you. And it's like, and then you're you're screwed. And so I, yeah, I've multiple times just like ran out there and like chase him off, especially, you know, the, the herd can't see me. I can just, kick him like i want him to run away sometimes they like run right into the herd <laughs> that's happened but yeah just like you said i think people you know try to try to not scare him off or whatever like try to like oh let's let this pan out you know it, it, like see where this goes and they're gonna start barking and it's gonna it's just gonna waste more time like you just don't have the time to deal with it or they're gonna get downwind and they're gonna be like oh that scenario equals humans yes right and then you just made a really smart young elk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you ever thought about the ecological uh, implications of hunting herd bulls? No. Tell me. Well, it's okay. Okay. I was, you go first, and then I'm going to have like my rebuttal to this because herd bull is, I think, a funny term that, yeah. uh, like, that changes daily. Like, you know, someone could share, everyone's like, oh yeah, I just want to share a herbal, even mature bull. I see guys post it like, oh, just looking for a mature bull. I'm like, well, what is that by definition? Like, I would love to know because, you know, that can change day to day. Even herbal, like that's just kind of a funny term to me because it's like that, I've watched it change day to day. And one day, you know, it was a 260 bull and the other day it's a 360 bull. Like they, like, did the 260 bull kick him out? No, he was just, that's the day I saw that bull with those cows like uh, so anyway <laughs> yeah yeah i mean a, cu- a couple things on that but uh let, let's say we've got like a, a classic situation and that herd bull is a, a five or six year old or older elk and that's the elk that is maintaining a harem and is is got first divs at, at breeding those cows mm-hmm. um a lot of people are, are really interested in hunting that elk specifically. And I think that there's a lot of really good reasons, compelling reasons not to. Not. Yeah. One is that bull has survived to maturity and is passing on genetics that can allow his offspring to survive to maturity. So that's good. That's good ecologically. Uh, and then another is that is the worst piece of meat on the mountain, <laughs> but by a lot right it's it's yeah. terrible yeah i've had it both ways i've had i've had God, i i have a bull that i shot last year that was terrible and this was like a ragworm bull and i'm like god that was not that great so, i mean it was zero degrees out so there's no reason and then i've had you know the big bull i killed in 2019 that bull was delicious so like, i've had to go both ways i would say by and large yes like big bulls are old tough you know like not as good i'm just looking at like to me, it's like, it's what we eat. Like, it's not like I have it like, Oh, throw this out and eat the cow. So like, to me, it's like, it's what we eat. I, I don't know. I go back. I, I understand your point of like, why do we shoot herd bulls? We, we should just shoot raghorns or we should shoot spikes um, or satellite bulls. Technically it would be like the best answer, right? Like, you know, it's a, it's still a mature bull, but at the same time, it's not like the prime bull, but I, in the last, maybe it's just where I'm hunting, but the last few years, I've rarely seen a herd, a bull stay with the same herd for more than five days. Like that, it just seems to change out way quick. Mm. 
Yeah. And that does, does certainly change from place to place. Uh, QDMA just published an interesting study that's been going on for over 30 years about uh, trophy buck management and, uh, and cold bucks in, in particular. And a lot of it was in, in high fence areas in Texas where they had, uh, you know, habitat that was simply split by fence and these pastures would be about the same size. And in one, they would cull really aggressively. And in the other, they would not. Um, it turned out that the, the coal areas had the same number of big bucks as the other areas that, that didn't experience culling. Um, the, the takeaway that I uh, want to grab from that for this conversation is that antler size has nothing to do with sexual viability. So the, the way that, that we place value on an elk based off of, you know, a 120 year old scoring system has nothing to do with the way a cow elk values a bull elk. Right. Um, so that, that, that's very, very interesting to me. That's very, very interesting to me that, that what, what we consider to be a, a big bull or a dominant bull really comes down to our own metric of, of assessing that elk. And according to elk, that's a very different thing. And I've seen a lot of bulls, especially in the last five years, I guess, I've seen a lot of bulls that nobody wants to shoot who are the herd bulls and they're winning. They're winning the genetic lottery. They've got the harems. They're controlling those cows. They're doing it for 17 days or longer. And, uh, you know, they're, they're doing the breeding, like they're, they're the winners, but they have antler configurations that, that the hunters are simply not interested in. And that's just fascinating. That's, me. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. And that's, I mean, to your point, like you're like, okay, and we're letting this bull breed, all of our cows and like genetically that's not what we want so yeah i could i could totally see that if genetically it's not what we want if they're getting antler genetics from the bull which i don't think is true yeah yeah and the reason i don't think that is uh, i was on a pheasant hunt in iowa years ago and i got to visit a whitetail farm it's fascinating they had you know gigantic whitetail bucks that were like two-year-olds like how are you doing this and they're and i was asking them about like their process and where they're selling them this and that uh and they would tell me the the price value of these different bucks and then i said well what would you sell that dough for that created that buck and this guy said i won't sell her i won't sell her for anything like, Ooh, that's interesting that's yeah. fascinating yeah so what what that bull that bull that didn't grow thirds or fifths is doing is he's passing on genetic traits that allow his offspring to survive, but the antler characteristics that those calves are getting are probably coming from the cows. Hmm. Dude, that is interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know what to make of that. And like you said, I, I think it does vary from area to area. Um, I, the first thing that comes to mind is there. Uh, there was an area that I grew up hunting. Uh, I don't want to say the name, but there's a certain creek. And the this area always threw like a devil tine. So like the the big bulls would always have like this little dub, you know. And I remember hearing as a kid, like, oh yeah, that's that, you know, that genetic comes from that area. And it makes me think like, surely that was more of a of the cows, you know, a cow or something. Like maybe it's the cows. 
than a bull, but maybe not. I don't know. Like, but that's that, that characteristic is kind of the thing that came to mind when, when you were talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, back to the bulls are dumb thing. Uh, when we have calves, they're, they're 50, 50 male and female. Right. But by the time we get to the end of hunting season, what we're seeing, and we can't tell on, you know, that the eight month old animals yet, but what we're really seeing is that the ratio of bulls to cows has dropped radically. You know, oftentimes it's between one and 15 and one and 25, or maybe, uh, uh, maybe it's only one in 10. Um, so, you know, somewhere, somewhere in that range, somewhere in that range. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and part of the management objective, uh, for any herd is going to be how many males do we have at the end of hunting season? And that, that's the way that they're, they're going to look at that. But, uh, we need a bunch of bull calves to die in order for that to occur. So why do the males die at a significantly higher rate than the females? Um, there's a biological imperative that they need to. And I think that largely the males are sacrificial to that herd. So the, the male animals are going to get killed by predators at a higher rate than the female animals because a male can breed multiple females. Right. So we need bulls to be dumb. We need bulls to be dumb so that they die more. Otherwise, the elk herd doesn't work. Dude, that is, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. What um, What's your best resource that you have come across? I know you have read a ton of stuff, a ton of reports, uh, papers on elk, elk biology, elk habits, elk habitat. What are a couple of your favorites? Hmm. So I used to just read books and I would, I would go cover to cover and then I would come back and I would intensely read the sections that I felt like were pertinent to the questions that I had. Now I, I just read scientific journals. So I go to Google scholar and I get a lot more pointed in what I read, but I, I don't want to read anything that is published on a website that sells a product. Uh, that's, if, if they advertise for the sale of a product or if they sell a product, uh, the information that you get there, it could be good, but you need to come into it with a degree of suspicion because the information there is is built in a way to incentivize you to make a purchase. And that's the only reason that that information exists. So it's tainted right off the bat. Whereas if you read it in a scientific journal, uh, then it's going to be peer-reviewed literature, which means that somebody has to write it. And then somebody else who knows a bunch about the subject has to read it and has to look at your data and say, yes, you came to good conclusions based off of this data. And I'm going to put my name and reputation on the line in order to support that. That means that that information has been vetted and the only real gain for the people that are putting that information out is to display that they have the ability to collect and present good and new information. So that's the value of going through something like Google Scholar to, to investigate and to learn about animals rather than going to some other publication. This is a whole rabbit hole you dive into because I do think that like you have grants and I do think that like the grant process and that does not negate the incentive structure of all papers. And so like 
mm, do you want to talk about grizzly bears or do you want to talk about uh well, I'm trying to think of a, like a caterpillar or something that has you know mm-hmm. very little value or something of that and so like ten, you tend like to say there is no product there is a product because scientists and writers get paid because they you know get grants to do these things and so in some way there's a fucking product there is there is and and i think that 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 is just the the nature of reality but we need to to limit what we can and right. i'm going to to trust peer reviewed information a lot more than i'm going to trust something that's that's just you know like the articles that i write okay <laughs> i i put a lot of effort into making sure that i get everything as correct as possible and that i'm presenting this information in an honest way that is understandable and interesting to a really wide audience, right? But if you read one of my articles, between every third paragraph, there's going to be an ad for you to go buy something. And, you know, with a with a structure of, of what I'm writing, I'm not the beneficiary of somebody making those purchases. You know, I, I make X amount of dollars from writing an article and and that's it. And if a million people read it, that doesn't change my bottom line at all. So I right. still have some fidelity there. Uh, but that's that's a relatively rare case, and you're you're still getting sold something. Um, and and nobody is really going through, except for you know the 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 readers. The readers go through and and they fact check me to pieces. Um, <laughs> but nobody's doing it before I published it. So. Yeah. If you're coming into it with with uh, with with love in your heart and and you trust me and you're just going to read this thing and and try and glean whatever information you can from it, it some of it could be unintentionally wrong, and that's just because nobody's come along and like really torn this thing apart before it was ever published, and that's really the difference between like commercial literature and scientific literature. Yeah, I'll give you that. Um if you could point the audience at one article that you've recently written, which one would you uh, recommend? Uh, so I wrote a, a big series um, this year called never miss again. Cause what I realized is that uh, it's not so much that I love hitting the targets that I hate missing it <laughs> so much. Um, so that's, that's my goal is to not miss right. More so than it is to actually hit what I'm aiming at. Uh, and I understand the, the conflict in, in what I'm saying here. My my final article in that series was about mental management, and I think that shooting skills are relatively basic from the physical aspects of it. Um, our equipment is is very good these days. It's it's so much better than it was even just a few years ago. Uh, our ability to learn techniques for manipulating that equipment is better than it's ever been. So you can learn how to shoot a bow or a rifle or a pistol really quickly by, you know, watching some videos and reading some articles and practicing a very little bit. And you can be proficient at the ranges that you need to be proficient at to go out and hunt. Uh, the reasons that people miss are, are mental management issues. So the the final article that I wrote in that series was um, five techniques for uh, for managing your own mind so that you can go ahead and uh, and do those basic physical things you need to do to make a shot. So maybe start with that one. And if you think that I'm, uh, you know, less than 70% full of shit, then you can read the rest of them. And where, where do we find that one at? Uh, Guns America, Hunt 365. Nice. Uh, well, as always, man, good to chat with you. Um, yeah, a wealth of knowledge. James uh, is 
great podcast, great uh, writer, all these things. Uh, go check out his podcast, the Six Ranch Podcast, and check out your articles. Uh, what what all magazines or what all publications are you writing for? Uh, currently, Hunt Three Sixty Five, and then uh, I got on the cover Outdoor Life this year, so Ooh, I'm pretty proud of that. Big guy. Woo-hoo. I know yeah. that's kind of cool, man. That is I really that one cool. when I was a kid. Yeah, that yeah. is that's big time, man. Congrats. Yeah. That's freaking Thanks. awesome. Thanks. All right, buddy. Well, thanks again. Um, and let's chat soon. We need to meet up in person before too long. It's been a very, very long time, man. It's been a while. Yeah. Let me, let me put a bow on this subject real quick. All right. I think I can do it fairly concisely. The thing that I want you folks to be working on and trying to learn is throttle control. So you need to know when to go fast and when to go slow and when to stop altogether. And the only way to do that is to experiment. And then after uh, analyze your results and and think about what went well and what could have went better and then start making those adjustments. But throttle control is is everything for maneuver. Like don't let them smell you. Don't let them see you. Don't let them hear you if you can avoid it. But learn how to control tempo. And that is what makes all of the difference. And play for tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Like don't, don't force it. Right. Uh, but like sometimes you, you've just got to go for it if it's the last day, but you've, you've still got to learn how to control the throttle, even if you are on your, your hail Mary play. Yeah, absolutely. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Um, Okay. Thanks brother. Go kill some ducks, man. Yeah. Gonna. Alrighty, guys, thanks for tuning into the show. If you like this episode, do us a huge favor and share it with one of your hunting buddies. Also, if you want a free hunt planner, be sure to go check the link in the show notes. It's 100% free. You can download our hunt planning tool, which is a great resource for kind of keeping track of all of your hunts, your hunt plans, your points, all of those things. Pretty great resource. Go check it out. Links in the show notes, or you can check our website, www.elkhunt201.com.